But let's go ahead and bow our heads for a word of prayer as we get into our message. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for being a God that is not afar off, as the psalmist says. Thank you for being a God that will draw near as we draw near to you. Thank you for being a God that was willing to come and be among us, to to get to know us, to become one of us, so ultimately we could spend eternity with you. What a privilege that is to call you our Father, our Lord, and as we open up these pages of Scripture today, I pray that you would be with us, and we ask these things in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen and amen. Today's message is entitled, Don't Hang Up Your Harps, and I invite you to turn with me uh, to Psalm 137. Let's go ahead and turn to Psalm 137. Love to hear those pages turn in, Psalm 137. In verse 1, we find that the Bible reads, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. They had grown up together in church. They were raised in a God-fearing home. They felt safe in their beliefs and how they had been raised up. However, they were now taken from their safe cultural cocoon and brought to a new place. They were transferred to a completely different school. They were forced to, to go on to a higher education in the capital of the world. They went from a lowly, rustic town to the big city, farm animals to filled, busy streets. Everything that they knew, everything that they were used to, suddenly was changed. Many of them had their names changed to names identical with heathen gods. One god to thousands of gods, a synagogue to a shrine. Their menu that they were given was pork chops instead of peas and potatoes. Wine instead of water. And now here they were, the Jewish captives in a foreign land. They had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar as he invaded Jerusalem, marched across the hot desert sands, and forced to live in a new land. By the rivers of Babylon, the psalmist reflects, reflects, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. Water was abundant in Babylon. In fact, it was a place of broad rivers and streams. And and Jeremiah 51 verse 13 tells us that Babylon was known as the land of many waters. And so here in Psalm 137, the, the psalmist puts us on the shore of one of the mighty rivers of Babylon, likely the Euphrates. And the psalmist reflects on how they resorted to the banks of those streams, glad to be away from those noisy streets, glad to be away from their captors. They sought the riverside, where where the flow of the river seemed to be in sympathy with their tears. It, It was a comfort outside of the hustle and bustle of the city, and there for just a moment to have some breathing room, to rest for a while. There they sat by the rivers of Babylon. They sat down and and lamented together and mourned together. Remember when we used to, remember this and remember that. 
even though the Euphrates was bigger and, and probably nicer than, than any rivers they had in Judah, they were sitting on foreign soil, and it just wasn't the same. As they lamented and mourned, they wept. They remembered the holy city and, and how their temple was in ruins. And it made themselves so sorrowful to the point of tears. To them, there was no land like Canaan. It held precious memories for them. And everything in this new place reminded Israel of her banishment from the holy city. Everything reminded Israel of her servitude beneath the shadow of Baal's temple her helplessness under her cruel enemy, and there they weep and mourn. In fact, when you read the Hebrew of verses 1 through 3, there continues to be nine different times a pronoun ending N-U or, or new. And those highlighted sections reflect that at the end of every word is this pronoun ending new, which means we or our. And in the Hebrew language, it sounds mournful. It's kind of like repeatedly crying, whoa, or oh. And so here the psalmist, even in this short poem that he writes, even the way that he writes it lets the reader know the sadness that they had experienced. I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 79. Just a few chapters back, it gives us just a little idea of what the Jewish captives were thinking. Psalm 79. A psalm of Asaph. Psalm 79, verse 1. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. The pagan nations have come into your inheritance. They've come into Jerusalem and ransacked it. Your holy temple. They've defiled. They've laid Jerusalem in heaps. The dead bodies of your servants they've given as food for the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. Their blood, they, the enemy Babylon, has shed like water all around Jerusalem. And there was no room to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those who are around us. Can you get a picture of what those Jewish captives were thinking that day as they sat by the rivers of Babylon? And they asked the question, here the psalmist asks in verse five, how long, O Lord, how long? Will you be angry forever, God? How long do we have to endure this? How long, God? Notice here on the screen, you don't have to turn there. I know it's kind of small, but Lamentations chapter 1, the Bible says, the roads to Zion mourn. Here, Jeremiah is remembering the exile. The roads to Zion mourn because no one comes to the set feast. All her gates are desolate. Here's in the middle of the exile. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. Her adversaries have become the master, and her enemies prosper. They wept that day over the death of loved ones. They wept over the loss of everything they had owned. They wept over the destroyed city of Jerusalem and her temple. They wept over their bleak future. They wept over their sin that had invited judgment from God. 
You know, I can't help but think that the same Nebuchadnezzar invasion has occurred in our world today. I can't help but think that just as Babylon encroached upon the territory of Israel, that the world and Babylon has encroached upon us. Our Judeo-Christian heritage has been invaded by a Babylonian mix of secularism. Not long ago, an atheist philosopher, maybe you've heard his name, Sam Harris, proclaimed on CNN this about God and religion. He said, for the world to tackle important problems, people have to stop looking to religion to guide their moral compass. We should be talking about real problems. The world in which we live doesn't have time for a biblical worldview. It's a postmodern world where truth is relative and truth simply is a personal preference. We live in a world that laughs at the idea of a creation story that God literally created the world in seven days. We live in a world that scoffs at the notion of Jesus actually resurrecting from the grave. We live in a world where morality is taught by Hollywood and immorality has become the norm. A world where feelings are given more priority than facts. We live in a world that pushes its agenda of their way rather than God's way. And we would certainly be aloof if we did not recognize, and I know that every person in this room does, the common narrative that is being pushed today. I'm sure some of you saw the story this past week, and it was about a 16-year-old female swimmer named Abigail Wheeler. You read about this story? She was kicked off her YMCA swim swim team because she spoke out when a trans woman, a biological male, was allowed to change in the woman's locker room. The girl spoke to her coach and put up some posters, but it was deemed hate speech, and she was kicked off the swim team. Not allowed to go into YMCA, once a a Christian organization. You can go to Barnes & Noble, and you'll see front and center the agenda that is being pushed. Sometime back, I saw a video of of a father who was incredibly upset. When his eight-year-old boy went to the physician, a new physician, was getting a physical for school sports, and the very first question the doctor asked him, was what gender would you like to be? First question. And unfortunately, the the agenda that is being pushed today is coming into schools, coming in to recreation facilities. Our young people and everyone is being invaded by Babylon. We can see the enemy fast approaching. There could be a lot more issues that I bring up. But I believe, friends, that each of us see very clearly Babylon being more and more normalized. But I don't just weep over Babylon's views being normalized or Babylon's ideas on on marriage being being pushed. I, I weep over addictions that are so strong that 
people fall prey to them and can't stand back up. I, I, I weep over selfishness and, and pride in my own heart. I, I, I weep when, when our own people tragically pass away, like not just long ago, Sister Pat. I weep when crime is allowed to take place, and I know we could mention a lot more. We could mention cancer, we could mention the sins in this world, but friends, I believe that our experience that that we are reading about in Psalm 137 is our experience. We're weeping by the rivers of Babylon. We're here in this world and we're saying, God, how long is this gonna go on? How long, Lord? It can be discouraging when we look what is taking place in our world. But we know, friends, that it's only gonna get worse. Before it gets better, it will get worse. And when discouragement threatens to overwhelm us, when we say, God, how long can we put up with this? When we feel like we can't hang on any longer, it is tempting to give up. It is tempting to hang up our harps. And that's precisely what happens in Psalm 137. I invite you to turn back with me there. As these Jewish captives are there in Babylon, and as they're weeping and thinking about where they are and thinking about their location and thinking about how they're on foreign soil and thinking about how discouraging it was to see all of those people pass away and to to see Babylon coming and taking them unfairly to a new place. By the rivers of Babylon, Psalm 137, verse one, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. Verse two, we hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. The psalmist here uses this poetic language to present a a striking scene. Large willow trees growing on the shores of the great river. In fact, the, the arabim or the willows were very plentiful in Babylon. And the great quantity of them on the banks of the Euphrates caused Isaiah in chapter 15, verse seven, to to call the Euphrates the brook or the river of willows. These drooping branches appeared to, to weep like the Jewish captives. And here, the Jewish captives, as they are discouraged, remembering Zion, they hang their harps on the tree branches. When a heavy cloud darkens your soul, how can you sing? Those same harps once played beautiful music in Zion's halls, and how can they play now? To make matters worse, the Babylonian captors show up, and and they're rubbing this situation in their face. Notice verse three. For those who carried us away captive, asked of us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Sing us one of those songs, Jewish captives. This was the cruel demand of of those that had carried them away. They asked for one of the famous songs of, of Zion. The very people that had plundered the people of God were now wanting them to entertain them. But there was no song left in them. They they had hung their harps. Those who came to interrupt their quiet were citizens 
of the destroying city, and they, and they ridiculed their faith in Jehovah. In fact, verse 3 is an insult to God. It's a mockery of the Jewish captives. And when you're grieving, nothing can make things worse than malicious, cruel ridicule. These persecutors had followed the Jewish captives down to their resting place. Couldn't they just leave them alone? Were the exiles to have no rest? And friends, isn't it the truth that when we are down is when Satan comes and rubs it in our face? When we are discouraged, saying, God, how can we go on any longer? That is the moment that Satan comes. And as he's already kicked us down when we've messed up time and time again, Satan says, sing me a song. I thought you were a Christian. I thought you were a Seventh-day Adventist. I thought you loved God. Sing me a song, he says. The world does the same thing. They poke and prod and make fun and saying, you know what? You Christians, your beliefs, they're just hate speech. You don't care. You don't love. And when we're pressed down by the world and by Satan, we say with the Jewish captives, notice verse four, friends. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? I resonate with their question. I don't fault them for hanging their harps. God, how can we hang, how can we sing our song? How can we sing when we know we'll get made fun of? How can we sing when our words will be twisted and used against us? How can we sing? How can we sing, God, when somebody in our church passed away in the way that they did so ruthlessly? Someone who helped and loved and gave was taken away. God, how can we sing in a moment like this? The question that the Jewish captives ask is a good one. Father, how can we sing? And I'm sure that there are many of us that have felt the song taken right out of us. But I invite us to look at the next few verses, verse five and six, because I believe it gives us good advice. Here's the same psalmist, the same one that says, God, how can we sing this Lord's song in a foreign land? Says this in verse five and six. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Wow. What is the psalmist saying? He's saying, I, I have to remember Jerusalem. I have to keep on singing. Yes, that was a dark moment. Yes, that takes place when the song is uh, beat out of us, but I am not going to stop singing. I am not going to let Babylon take my song from me. I'm not going to let Satan poke and prod and, 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 and allow me to not sing anymore. In fact, the psalmist says, he says it would be better if I forgot to play the harp. If my right hand forgot its skill, it would be better if my tongue clung to the roof of my mouth. I was reading in Review and Herald, this is from November 1, 1881, paragraph 16, an excellent article. I encourage you to look this up if you have an opportunity, but notice what we're told here. My brethren and sisters, you who feel that you are entering upon a dark path, and like the captives in Babylon must hang your harps upon the willows. If you felt that before, inspiration tells us, 
let us make trial of a cheerful song. You may say, how can I sing when this dark prospect before me with this burden of sorrow and bereavement upon my soul? How can I sing? But have earthly sorrows deprived us of the all-powerful friend we have in Jesus? Friends, can we answer that question? Have earthly sorrows deprived us of our friend in Jesus? The answer is no. Should not the marvelous love of God in the gift of his dear son be a theme of continual rejoicing? Should it not? When we bring our petitions to the throne of grace, let us not forget to also offer anthems of thanksgiving. And I love this last line, friends. As long as our Savior lives, we have cause for unceasing gratitude and praise. Is Jesus still alive, friends? Is Jesus in heaven ministering on our behalf? The answer is yes. And so if that is the case, we have something to thank God for. When Babylon comes and asks us, sing us a song, we can rise with pride in our hearts because of Jesus and say, let me tell you about Jesus. I'll sing you a song. Not about me. Not about what happened. Not a a song about the church. I'm going to sing a song about Jesus. Notice in the same article what we're told. The Lord's merciful kindness is great toward us. He will never leave nor forsake those who trust in him. If we would think and talk less of our trials and more of the mercy and goodness of God, we would find ourselves raise much of our gloom and perplexity. Isn't that the truth, friends? That when we feel like we don't have a song, we're tempted to hang our harps. I believe that one of the best things that we can do is to simply recount out loud God's mercies and what he has done for us. And as we do that, friends, I believe we become encouraged. I believe God helps us. Notice this, same article, a couple paragraphs before. We're told when difficulties and trials surround us, we should flee to God and confidently expect help from him who is mighty to save and strong to deliver. We must ask for God's blessing if we would receive it. Prayer is a duty and a necessity, but do we not neglect praise? Should we not often render thanksgiving to the giver of our blessings? And I'm guilty of that, friends. Neglecting praise and thanksgiving in my prayers. Should we not often render thanksgiving to the giver of all blessings? We need to cultivate gratitude. How many of you cultivate a garden? Cultivating a garden takes time, it takes effort, it takes perseverance, and here we're told we need to cultivate gratitude. We need to think about and plan how to cultivate gratitude. We should frequently contemplate and recount the mercies of God and loud and glorify his holy name even when we are passing through sorrow and affliction. Wow. And the good news is this, friends. I believe that when we very intentionally recount the good things that God has done, even when we are in the middle of Babylon and we have all of this coming around us, when we think of what good God has done, that physically impacts us. When we think about gratitude and we think about things that we're thankful for, it makes a difference. And actually, there have been studies about this. I was reading one study that was done back in 2012, about 10, 11 years ago, and 
the researchers asked all participants to ask a few, uh, to write down a few sentences each week. And they were to focus on specific topics. And essentially, one group wrote down things that they were thankful for, things they were grateful for. I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for that I have a food. I'm grateful that I have a roof over my head. I'm thankful for church, thankful for the sunshine, whatever it may be, things that they're grateful for. But the other group, notice that last sentence, wrote about daily irritations or things that displeased them. Ah, Lord, and I'm making it a prayer, but they didn't make it a prayer. They're just writing down, right? Oh, I get so mad at the traffic, right? Oh, I'm so upset, you know, when my coworker does this and, you know, oh, I'm so angry that when my kids uh, come up to me and are impatient or whatever it may be. Daily irritations. Does anyone else have things that daily irritate them? Come on, let's be honest here. So imagine if you did that for a, a, a week, a few weeks. You're writing down everything you're thankful for or writing down everything that irritates you. And then they followed up with these two groups and what they noticed was interesting. After 10 weeks, it was actually lo- longer than a couple weeks, 10 weeks, two and a half months, those who wrote about gratitude were more optimistic and felt better about their lives than the group that didn't. And notice this. Surprisingly, the group that wrote down things they were grateful for exercised more and had fewer visits to physicians than those who focused on sources of aggravation. If you want to go to the doctor less, write down for 10 weeks every single day things you're thankful for. And as Christians, we don't just write down things we're thankful for. We write things that God has done for us, things that Jesus has done for us. Everyone has something they can be thankful for. Even if your life is going terribly right now, you need money for food, maybe bills are are hard to pay, maybe you're struggling. Well, all of us have something to be thankful for because as we read earlier, Jesus is alive. And if he's alive, we have something to be grateful for. Isn't that the truth, friends? Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 5. 2 Chronicles chapter 5. What happens when we praise God? What happens when we actually thank God? God, thank you for this. Even though it's difficult and we're tempted to hang our harps, what happens when we praise God? 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Notice this. Verse 13. 2 Chronicles chapter 5 verse 13. The Bible says, indeed it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, for he is good and his mercy endures forever. So they're singing and they're praising God. What happens? The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud. They couldn't see anymore. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Friends, when we praise God, he shows up. In fact, that's what the Bible says. Psalm 22.3, many of us are familiar with this verse. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. We've heard that phrase before. God inhabits the praises of his people. And we just read in 2 Chronicles that he literally dwells on the praises. He shows up when we're praising God. And when we're tempted to hang our harps because Babylon seems to be encroaching, I believe that God is wanting us to keep on singing his song. 
I believe that God wants us to continue to sing the songs of heaven and the songs of Zion. And the good news is we don't have to know how to play the harp. Because only the Baileys probably would be uh, praising God if that was the case. And even though I'm a harper, I don't know how to play the harp, as I've told you. But what we do need to do is we need to learn the song of Jesus. We need to learn the song of Jesus. Notice this, we're told in Manuscript 91, 1901, when the enemy comes with his darkness, sing faith and talk faith, and you will find that you have sung and talked yourself into the light. Isn't that beautiful, friends? When you are discouraged, you start singing faith. You're gonna sing yourself right into faith even though you don't have any. I love what else, uh, one of my favorite quotes, Mrs. White says, talk and act as if your faith is invincible. My faith is not invincible, friends. It's not. I doubt. And I imagine that your faith is not invincible either. But if you talk like it is, even if you don't believe yourself, God, I'm discouraged right now, but I don't care. Lord, you are good. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You start convincing yourself that you are actually okay. Often we say, friends, often we say that our words follow our thoughts, and it's true. That's a, that's a true principle. That our words follow, whatever we're thinking about, whatever we're watching, whatever we're listening to, we end up speaking that. But the opposite is true as well. Our thoughts follow our words. And if I am talking and speaking faith, I'm gonna start believing faith in my heart. And I believe that God wants us to be half cup full people, not half cup empty people. To have a faith-based optimism. Notice page 572, lift them up. We must learn here to sing the song of heaven so that when our warfare is over, we can join in the song of the heavenly angels in the city of God. What is that song? I was asking that question this week. Lord, what does it mean to sing your song, to sing the heavenly song, to sing the sweeter song? And I came across this quote. What is that song? That song is praise and honor and glory to God. That's what the song is. When you praise and honor God for what he has done for you, for who he is, you praise him that sitteth on the throne and you praise the lamb, you praise Jesus for what he has done on the cross. That is the heavenly song. And I know, friends, I know that Satan is seeking to teach us different songs. I know that's the case. I know that the song of, of discouragement or, or the song of, of, of media or, or the song of, of, of uh, wealth or, or power, all these different songs are distracting us. In fact, I was reading a little book by Melody Mason. She's an Adventist author in charge of the Revival and Reformation Committee, and she shared a little illustration in one of her books about uh, the uh, uh, author Homer and in his book Odyssey. Um, and it's a, you know, she says in this, in, in, in her book, I don't recommend reading this book, but she says this illustration from, from Homer's famous work, The Odyssey, that I think is appropriate. And, and he tells a, a mythical story about these creatures, these mythical creatures that are called the, uh, the, the sounding sirens. And they're there in the water, and as ships pass by, this is off the coast of Italy, these, you know, uh, in this mythical story, these creatures would sing these uh, alluring, seductive songs. And the sailors would start listening to this music and they'd be, oh, what's that music? What's that? Oh, that's so beautiful. And they would go toward this music and then they would crash on the rocks. 
But there was a, a captain, the first captain, um, and let me uh, find his name. It really doesn't matter what his name is. I wrote it down. But first captain, um, Ulysses. There we go. The Lord brought it to my mind. Ulysses, the first captain, he thinks, how can I solve this problem? And so he puts wax in the ears of his sailors. And, and, and it works a little bit. They, don't, they can't hear the sound of the siren, but they're miserable because they know what they're missing. They're, they're miserable because they know, oh, if I could just hear the sound of the sirens, that beautiful music. And, and so the whole time he's forcing them to put this wax in their ears. But then there's another captain. Starts with an O, but I forgot his name. doesn't matter. But another captain comes along, and he has a better idea. And his idea is to play more beautiful music. And so he gets out his musical instrument, and he starts playing this incredibly beautiful, gorgeous music. And prior to getting to this location, and the sailors are listening to this captain's music, oh, this is so pretty. This is beautiful. And as they're captivated by the captain's song, they're not distracted by the sound of the sirens. And because their hearts are into the captain's music, it's that much more beautiful. And, and, and Melody Mason goes on to say how, you know, it doesn't work to just stop listening to Babylon, right? We, we, we can try, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, this is what Pastor Wright's been talking about, righteous by faith. I'm gonna try hard, I'm gonna try harder. But ultimately, if we don't replace it with a sweeter song, we're doomed to failure. If we just say, I'm gonna put all bad things out of my life, I'm gonna put all media out of my life, I'm gonna resist it, oh, we can't resist it. It's too strong. And we're miserable because we know what we're missing. But if we learn the master's song, if we learn the song of Jesus, the sweeter song, if we spend time at the feet of Jesus, that, friends, is how we will resist the sound of the sirens. That's how the sound or the song of, of discouragement and the sound of, oh, I'm overwhelmed by this, this, this world, and all the different music that Babylon is pushing our direction. We can be overwhelmed by that music, but as we learn the master's song and spend time at his feet, his song becomes a lot more attractive than Babylon's song. And that means, friends, that we need to spend time learning the master's song. Spend time daily at the feet of Jesus. Now, as the uh, associate pastor at this church, part of my role is, is to work with young people. And so I wanted to tell another story to the kids. Kids, how many kids do we have here? Yes? All right, fantastic. We have a lot of kids. I want to tell you children a story, and adults, you can listen in too. Um, but we were reading this week, and we came across a story, and I thought, man, Lord, this story would be perfect for the kids at Hendersonville. So kids, are you guys ready? You guys listening? All right, I see you guys up there in the balcony. You guys are ready to go. This song is called His Master's Bagpipes. Mrs. Smith was cleaning the kitchen when she heard a noise. She paused for a moment, and there it came again, a, a low whine, a snuffing sound. And looking through the door, Mrs. Smith saw a small Maltese dog right outside sniffing at her step. So boys and girls, have you ever seen a little small Maltese dog? Beautiful little dog. She left her work and went outside to, to look at this little dog. He was so dirty and bedraggled, and clearly he had been lost for some time. Plainly, he was lost because no owner of such an expensive type of dog would allow him to get in such condition. 
So she decided to take him in, bathe him, give him some food, and see if she could find who his master was. The first thing that he needed, she felt, was food and a, a good bath. So she put out a, a bowl of, of milk, and, and he lapped and lapped as if he would never stop. Imagine, boys and girls, that dog just lapping. He was so hungry, he hadn't eaten for some time. She filled the bowl again, and, and his tail wagged with pleasure. He didn't mind having a bath when later I brought in a laundry tub of warm water. When he was dry, uh, I ended up giving him a good brushing so that his white, silky hair gleamed. Oh, you're a beautiful little boy, Mrs. Smith exclaimed. And a little pink tongue licked her ear. I wonder what your name is, Mrs. Smith says. Joey? Terry? She tried a few names, trying to see if the dog might perk up his attention. Mm, snuffy. We'll call you Snuffy. That's what you were doing around my house. You were snuffing around my door. Uh, I'll call you Snuffy. Well, they tried and tried to find the owner of this dog. They looked in the newspaper. They put ads out. They did everything, but they couldn't find the owner of this dog. Six months later, Snuffy was still with them, and one day, the Smiths decided to have a musical evening in their house. Invite over some of their friends and family and neighbors and relatives. And they put Snuffy outside in a basket, but they didn't shut the small dog door in case Sniffy wanted to come, Snuffy wanted to come in. Well, first a pianist performed, played beautiful music. Then a, a violinist got up and, and played some beautiful music. And, and Snuffy the dog, the entire time during the pianist and the violinist, stood right outside not paying any attention. But suddenly, Snuffy the dog woke up. That sound, he had heard it. Back in the past, his master had made that weird, squeaking melody that was music in the dog's ears. He jumped out of his basket in a flesh, he barked through that little door, or barged through it, rocketed down the hall, and not pausing, he tore into the living room with one look at the seated man playing the bagpipes. And with a yelp of joy, he flung himself onto the player's lap and he jumped up and down. As the musical master, as the bagpipe player gasped, Mac, Mac, his name wasn't Snuffy, it was Mac. Mac, it's you, oh, I've missed you. Why, Mac, said Mr. Reeves, the bagpiper, you've been lost for nine months. I advertised for six weeks, but no one brought you back. Ah, Mrs. Smith said, that explains why we didn't know who you were the owner. We found him six months ago. We watched the paper for a few weeks, but no one ever came. Mr. Reeves said, I, he always used to sit next to me when I played. I reckon he heard the bagpipes, and he knew that he had found me again. Let me read this last paragraph, because I think it says it better than me. Mac is very much like some people. When they're small, they learn to love God. But as they grow older, they lose sight of him and wander away. They might even be happy doing other things, listening to the sound of the siren. But one day, something reminds them of God. And once they find the master's music again, they're not looking back because no one else's music allures them other than the master. I believe, friends, I believe with all of my heart that Jesus is desiring us to be enthralled with the music of the master. And there might be someone here who, like little Mac, has strayed away from the master musician. 
Maybe there's someone here that has walked slowly away from God and you can feel it in your heart that you are far away from God. You are lost. But maybe today you hear a note from the master musician saying, would you come home, my child? You hear a note from God. Maybe lately God has been speaking to you and you catch notes from heaven and you're saying, God, I want to listen at your feet again. And the good news is that you can, friends. You can go back to the master, just like Mac went back to his. And I pray, friends, that in the coming days and, and, and weeks, as we finish out this summer, I pray that we would spend time daily at the feet of Jesus listening to his music, I pray that, that his song would become throw, so enjoyable and so enthralling to us that the worldly music around us would not crash us against the rocks. Jesus is coming soon. He is coming soon, friends. And he wants to, us to give our hearts to him.